Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. Just because you have a Black person in leadership doesn't mean that they have experienced the generational, the psychological trauma of institutional racism in this country. In this episode, we continue our interview with Dr. Jerome Lisk, an African-American dual board certified neurologist with a subspecialty in movement disorders. Dr. Lisk discusses racial bias affecting African-American physicians and the difficulty of trying to get medical journals to publish articles addressing it. Next, we want to talk about the article on racial bias. There's a large body of research on analyzing the problem and identifying health disparities. However, there is a lack of research or published research about the root causes of disparities, specifically racism. Medical and academic journals, typically they like to shy away from research that directly calls out racism at the root. You mentioned like you, along with other neurologists, about nine or so, wrote an article on racial bias in medicine and that you're having difficulty with getting it published. And you said how the subject of the article is institutional racism against African-American physicians. And that's from, of course, like hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, medical organizations and just other institutions in healthcare and medicine. But can you just break down more and explain more about the article itself and then the difficulty that you all have faced in getting it published and sort of where you've attempted to get it published and maybe the responses you've gotten back from those journals? Yes. So the article is 10 action items to combat uh, racial bias. And so this was, this was basically we chose this title because the women's group, and I'm not really, I can't remember the actual article that they published, but it was an article they published, and it was 10 action items to combat, I believe, sexism in medicine. And so it was responded to really well. Um, I mean, I had the title correct, so excuse me, all my uh uh, female neurologists out there that probably were involved with that, but I may not have that article actually, the title correct, but it was basically the same concept. We said that got so much response and people really liked it and they tend to be receptive to it. So let's do 10 action items uh, to prevent racial, to combat, not prevent, but to combat racial bias in medicine. And how this started is that, um, Someone sent an email. We have these little listservs with neurology where all of us are on, you know, certain email chains. And so someone sent an email and uh, I'm in my office in Pasadena, California, before I moved to Texas here. And I just had to respond. I just (laughs) something in me just had to respond because once again, we were looking at racial bias as the doctor patient relationship. 
which is fine. And we have to, we have to help with diversity and inclusion and health equity with patients, people receiving health care. But as an African-American male physician and seeing other colleagues, people of color that are not African-American, Indian, uh, Filipino, Hispanic, going through racial bias, whether you call it explicit or implicit racial bias in medicine throughout our careers from medical school to residency to when you're out with hospitals, pharmaceutical companies not giving you opportunities because they don't want you to be the face of their company. You know, I just got so frustrated. I shot an email back and, um, you know, uh, I had, you know, I was in the zone as far as typing and my thoughts and I got a response back uh, that people were like, wow, really? Geez, I'm sorry you experienced that. You know, um, mm. I can't believe that that's still going on. Uh, you know, and so uh, a friend of mine that's that's he's an Indian uh, physician that doesn't look quite Indian. He could be mistaken for Hispanic, you know, um, or a mixture of Hispanic and African American. So he he said, hey, he said, hey, uh, Jerome, why don't we go ahead and do a do you want to do an article about this? I said, yeah, it'd be a great idea. So we basically got together, the two of us. We recruited uh, physicians. And we had, had a, was an African-American physician in California uh, working for you and working at the USC Rancho Los Amigos in administration that basically said, yeah, I'll do it with you. And um, got off the, I said, great. You know, I've known this guy for a while not personally, just colleague, got off the phone and um, try to call him back next week so we could talk about it. Got no reply, you know, and um, then talked to a, a couple other people that's, you know, one guy's African-American male said, well, it's, it's not really, you know, there's different ways to fight. I said, okay. And there was a lot of fear from African-American neurologists that, that made excuses on why they didn't want to get involved in writing the article. And most of this is because of getting retaliation, getting ostracized, mm -hmm. becoming a target. They don't want to be seen as that African-American, that black person that is talking about or complaining about racial bias or, or that they're using that to say that their careers are not as, uh, advanced as they would like. Mm. So we went on and wrote it, took a while. We started in right after George Floyd, okay. right after George Floyd's murder. We, yeah. That's when we started it. We sent it to um, the neurology journal. So there was, there was a comment about it was too long. and wanted to trim it down. Then there was a comment uh, saying that it was, it was the subject was controversial. And well, of course it's controversial. That's why we're publishing right. it. You know, our, some authors didn't feel comfortable with it, right? They didn't feel comfortable, made them feel uncomfortable. Well, you, you have to have, I mean, there's a, there's a book over here that I have called Crucial Conversations. You have to have uncomfortable conversations in order to talk mm -hmm. about and solve problems. We went to New England Journal of Medicine which was they're publishing more stuff about diversity and inequality and health disparities than any journal in America. Mm -hmm. 
they turned us down more because it wasn't talking about patients, I believe, you know, mm-hmm. and then we even went to the American Journal of Psychiatry. They turned us down. We went to the Health Disparities Journal, even. <laughs> you would think, how do I get turned down by the Health Disparities Journal? <laughs> okay, because we're not, I guess we're not talking about health disparities with the public. We're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, how it affects African-American physicians. And so finally, you know, we went to Practical Neurology and it's in review there. We went to Practical Neurology. They said, oh, it's too short. Can you give us the original version? So because we want to see the longer version of it. And we're like, (laughs) (laughs) we were like, you know, and so there was a lot of there was a lot of attempts to get us to trim out things to um, the last action item in the article was about grandfathering and board certification. There's a lot of money involved when it comes to boards or millions and millions of dollars that certain these medical boards like the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology that they're making in addition to their day job that has been published, that has been published their salaries, their nonprofit salaries to have doctors do um, uh, board certification that is meaningless and does not, uh, does not improve patient care. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned that was mentioned in there as far as grandfathering, and that battle's being has been fought for a long time. And my co-author is, um, you know, was even told he's he was even told, you know, if you if you continue down this path of uh, fighting board certification, you're probably going to get blackballed in American Academy of Neurology. And that's actually what happened. Oh, wow. And so that could be a, that's probably one of the other reasons why we didn't get publish on those journals is because we were talking about board certification and uh, grandfathering. Because when, when, when the board certification was, when people grandfather in, grandfathering means you don't have to take the test. It says, mm-hmm. okay, if you, if you left residency beyond this year, say 1980, say make up a year, 1985, mm-hmm. then you're grandfathered in, you automatically are board certified and you don't have to do the recertifications, right? Well, things who are were, changing all the time. Who right. were the what? What color were the physicians, and how many how many male physicians versus female physicians were there back in nineteen eighties? Majority mm-hmm. were Caucasian physicians, and majority were men and not women. Mm-hmm. So you've basically that is kind of a form of discrimination when you talk about board certification because now that the workforce is more diverse. You're making these people supposedly do these things that are supposed to make them more competent and mm-hmm. keep their skills up. Yeah. But yet the old the, the people that probably need to keep their skills up the most, the older physicians mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't have all this new information and technology come out yeah. now, you're not requiring them to do it. That's that. <laughs> yeah, that, more. That- that's what really, I think that's probably one of the things that really hurt us the most. But that's what needs attention called to. Yes. You need to be up to date on what's going on and, and it affects your practice. And, yes. and and that's not fair. So that definitely needs to 
be spoken about. Yeah, because it's just, it's doing a disservice to the other doctors who are then so-called, like you said, being forced to go through those recertifications to get this board certification. And then it's doing a disservice to the patients who are stuck with people who are just sort of like, oh, you got it way back when. So like you have it already. Like how are their patients being treated versus these newer doctors and you're, you're grandfathering in a bunch of older white men for the most part, which mm-hmm. then keeps these fields at a disadvantage in terms of the demographic and the makeup and who is who are in positions, who are doctors there serving communities. It's just, and I, I get why they don't want to change it because that means mm-hmm. confronting what they've done. And what they've done is made sure that white people, older white men, were protected in a way and everyone else sort of has to try to catch up. But, yeah. oh, and I can't believe, yeah, your other co-author ended up getting blacklisted and the fear that you spoke about of other people that had initially said that they were interested or you thought would want to join in. And you have a fear of like, you've, you've gotten to this level. You've been elevated to this point as a physician mm-hmm. and you've have your established career and, it is scary then to go against the mainstream. It's scary to then confront these controversial topics that they talk about because then what you've made and established is in jeopardy. But realistically, you need to look at the bigger and broader picture of what about everybody else that'll come after you? What about all the other people that like you could be helping? And it's hard to do that. But then we need to understand that in coming together and being supportive of our community members is really how we can affect change and not existing on like our own little islands of like you got to protect with what's yours and understanding that maybe what's yours can also be what other people have, too. Yeah. And our article goes over the the 10 action. The first action item is uh, be aware of your implicit bias towards others. And so there's conscious mm-hmm. bias, which are stereotypes or preconceived notions that are, mm-hmm. we're fully aware of. You know, that could be people calling you racial slurs out, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Ku Klux Klan rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's more conscious bias. Uh, unconscious or ex- implicit bias are, you know, stereotypes or preconceived notions that subconsciously influence our thoughts or actions. So you have these uh, pervasive, distinct uh, mental constructs that may not necessarily align with the people's principles of belief. Are the people, are the principles, um, are the persons harboring them in the book called The Blind Spot from Harvard University goes into this and there's a lot of psychological research. That book is packed with research with age discrimination, gender discrimination, and racial discrimination, and it stresses that good people have biases, right? You have a bias about what grocery store you go to when you want to go someplace. You have a bias on whether you like dogs or cats. To to black folks, we feel as if, okay, when people are doing something that is that we know is prejudice and, it's, and we can recognize it better than any other group, uh, because you've been around it so long and you experience other people don't recognize it because they haven't experienced it. They don't have their antennas up, right? Well, majority of racial bias is implicit. People, it's unconscious. 
And when you point that, and but to us, we feel implicit bias is conscious bias. And this is where the, the everything goes, where things go south. A white person says something to a black person, clearly, uh, you know, uh, racial, it's, it's, you know, it's prejudice, it's prejudicial. And you, you, you tell the person, well, you're being racist or you're being prejudiced. That person's say that white person says, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. And so you get people get defensive. Good people have biases. You could be a good person and have racial bias. Mm-hmm. You're not a bad person. No, you're not a bad person, but it's about in the moment when you're confronted with someone telling you, hey, that behavior, that action, what you just said, there's an issue with it. And instead of maybe receiving that and going, ooh, let me reevaluate how I'm approaching things. A lot of people get defensive, like you said, and then automatically sort of shut down. And there needs to be an an open-mindedness and a willingness to understand from other people's perspectives where I'm telling you this because this makes me feel uncomfortable. And you need to understand that the way society has been structured and built, especially in this country, is that you've always been comfortable. Now is your time Mm -hmm. to be uncomfortable and to realize that the things that you're doing are harmful to me. And they might seem like like little tiny moments, but that all builds up to a bigger and broader issue. And so we need to realize that and hopefully people can be more open-minded and accepting of when their racial bias is called out. But like you've shown with this paper, people really aren't willing to do that because there's so much hesitance and then they don't want to publish it. So... Well, also what happens is what I want people that if they're not, if they're not a person of color, if a person of color tells you you're being racist or prejudiced, first ask that person, well, is, are you saying what I'm doing, you know, is, was, was what I did or what I said was prejudice and don't, and don't internalize it. People internalize it. And they say, well, you're saying, I am being, I am prejudiced. I am racist. No, even the person is saying you, what they really mean is what you did or what you said. So do not internalize it and actually have a conversation about it because you're probably a good person and they probably really don't think that you're really racist. They think you're just a racist thing. Mm -hmm. And that's separate from you as a person or human being. It's not we're not saying that's who you are. There needs to be more articles discussing this and people need to be having study groups and just breaking it down. Like, what can you do? How can you address your biases? Like you said, we all have some in- inherent biases. So what can we do so that we can make our practice equitable and things? And we can't just all say, oh, we're just going to be colorblind. We're just going to be colorblind because it does not work like that in that does not improve health outcomes for anyone. And like you said, I can't wait for the article to come out. It's 10 actionable steps. A lot of times yeah. we want to research it and research it and you know identify the health disparity in this, but what can we do? We need to take these action steps, apply them and see how they are improving outcomes. Like we need to be putting things into practical, actionable steps. And you shouldn't be receiving pushback. We should be open to having this dialogue in order to move the conversation forward. And I wanted to 
talk. It can be difficult when you're trying to speak up, you're trying to address racial biases within your field. And I know you're in school currently pursuing an executive healthcare MS MBA combination degree. And we just want to talk about like your future plans with that because it can be hard, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and getting into um, the C-suite of um, healthcare where you can really make large scale systemic approaches. But like how you said, your friend who is speaking out and he's being um, blackballed and blacklisted. So I just want to know how you plan to address those barriers and what you're doing with your furthering your education. My what I want to do is get into a technology or artificial intelligence company. Some company does mm-hmm. technology and healthcare. Okay. And I know I'm going to have to be pretty close to the top of the ladder to really influence the culture and to um, to really you know make sure that we're doing the best that in any company that I join that we're doing the best that we can do for diversity and making everyone feel that they could be proud to show their culture, whether it's a hairstyle, whether it's the way they dress, whether it's um, anything about their culture, they could come into that organization and not feel judged. That's one of our action items as well is, is not assimilating as well. You know, have, how they say, you know, you have to act white. And we have these we have these examples like, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas, Brian Gumble. You know, people used to make jokes about that in the past. And it's important to know, as I bring that up, that just because you have a black person in leadership doesn't mean that they have experienced a generational the psychological trauma of institutional racism in this country. There are black people from Africa. There are black people from the Caribbean, Cuba, Brazil. Um, I was in college with a black girl from France that couldn't hardly speak a lick of English. And so just because you put black people there doesn't mean that they're African-Americans that have gone through this experience and that these other black people can relate to African-Americans. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. I was in the American Academy of Neurology 2016 Diversity Leadership Program because I had tried from 2009 to 2016 to get on a committee and kept on getting denied, denied, denied. So finally, I just said, I quit. I'm not going to become a member anymore. Fill out a survey saying all this. I felt like, you know, African-Americans and women were not necessarily being uh, allowed to seek leadership positions. And so they sent me, uh, CEO called me. I did that on a Friday. CEO called me on a Monday and said, don't quit. We need people like you, et cetera. So they got me in. And um, the first day I mentioned that there was nothing in our bylaws to show how we treat each other. There is now, but how we treat each other. And um, after the 
in that diversity leadership program, we had 12 to 13 people. Why are there only two African-Americans in the whole program? But like we're the program is geared towards people that grow up in the United States that have been disenfranchised with you know, uh, institutional racism to allow more people of color, particularly people that are at disadvantage and are not learning about this in high school and college, getting this exposure. Mm-hmm. So instead, you know, they 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 filled it with people that were um, either first or second generation African, and um, when they they didn't feel Hispanic Americans, mm-hmm. they got people that were first generation here from Venezuela, Colombia. So mm-hmm. they're seeking minorities that are either either their first time here or that they're first generation, but they're not putting the minorities that are grown up here that are experiencing interracial generational mm-hmm. uh, racial, racial bias. Mm-hmm. They're not putting those people in the programs, but it looks good because when you look at people, you can't tell who's African-American, who's not. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. true. So that's a big problem with diversity programs in the United States okay. yeah. and also leadership roles too. Yeah. They're putting they're not putting African Americans in leadership roles, just black people. Mm. Yeah, we really need to unpack that because as black people, we are not a monolith. We all have different complexities and it's very different from people um generations of people who have grown up descendants of slaves who have a different perspective versus somebody who comes here first generation here. So it's very different cultural beliefs and ideologies. So we can't just, you know, put someone in a position like, like you said, uh, race is a social construct. So that needs to be broken down as well. So. Right. And even when you have African-Americans that you put in leadership position, it doesn't mean that those African-Americans are going to care about diversity. So not only do you, first of all, have to get African-Americans there so that you are are helping other African-Americans that are generations that are uh, descendants of slaves and have experienced generational racism. But then you got to get those people to have a passion about it. I've I've seen we we have African-American leaders in medical organizations I'm a part of that they, you know, they kind of sit there and they're kind of, you know, just kind of passive. And they do little things here and there. They'll speak up if things get out of control, mm-hmm. but they're not progressive. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's a problem. And when you're when you're five foot five as a you know as an African American male, and you look like a little teddy bear, you know, <laughs> verse. First, you look like me, you're 6'2", 235, and the first that you walk in the room, the first thing people think is you play basketball or football, <laughs> and that's the first conversation they want to have with you. Mm-hmm. You're not the type of per- you're not the type of African American they're trying to put in the leadership position that they feel looks smart enough, mm-hmm. that has that acad- intellectual look. And so I get a lot of that too. Mm-hmm. Not only African American, but you know, if you have somebody six five that you know looks like a WWE wrestler or bodybuilder coming in, you're not going to automatically think this guy is the smartest guy in the room, right? <laughs> yeah. But he may be. He probably is. And so, size, 
your athletic build, that can be intimidating to people. And that even adds in more, um, more, more bias. Yeah. And you make a lot of great points and we definitely need to put a pin in this conversation and we can't wait until this article comes out so that we can um, fully break down all those actionable steps and between your practice, also being an adjunct clinical faculty member, team member, and also the research. We want to know what do you like to do for fun in like your downtime? How do you relax? Um, You know, it can be hard, like tackling like racial disparity. So how do you keep yourself renewed and just going into things optimistically? So I spend a lot of time at home with my family. You know, um, you know, like spending time with my wife, et cetera, doing things with her. Also, uh, you know, I like playing chess. I don't get to play very often, but, you know, I, every, we all have those little games we play on our iPad or on our phone. I have one of those little ones that I'm playing all the time. Uh, going to the shooting range and in the recent past, jujitsu, because jujitsu is like chess. And so jujitsu is something that I need to get back into, but, you know, working out, lifting weights, things of that sort, like doing that type of thing. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well-rounded. And I know you were talking before about the blind spot. Um, Any other books or podcasts that you would recommend to our audience to check out? It could be healthcare related or just anything that you've been listening to. Yeah. I on, I on healthcare. It's I-O-N Healthcare. Uh, There's a guy named KP. I met him on LinkedIn and we built a relationship. He's a big, he's big in diversity and inclusion. And he has a lot of people that are on his show that are talking about healthcare disparities. But once again, no, we we don't want to hold the mirror up to ourselves. Mm -hmm. He does. He, he, he is, he's also recognizes as a problem. But whenever we have guests on podcasts and radio shows or even TV, we're always talking about as it relates to the patient, as if, you know, as if, you know, black folks are just kind of going through medicine and with no, this is the only field that has no racism and <laughs> we're just happy and cheese it and having a good time, <laughs> you know, which mm-hmm. is, which is not, not really the case. Um, and so that's one uh, I recommend everyone to take the implicit uh, bias test at Harvard EDU. All you have to do is put implicit bias uh, test Harvard into Google and take that. And if you Google blind spot, don't put the blind spot because you'll get a different book, but definitely read blind spot on audiobooks. Very good book. There's also uh, a book, probably one of the first books to talk about health disparities by W.B. Du Bois, The Philadelphia Negro. That's another book that talked about health disparities, too. Those are great recommendations, and um, I'm sure our audience would love to check those out. Thank you for coming on our show, and we look forward to having you back um, because I learned so much, and I know Camille learned so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys, and I appreciate you and all the great work you're doing with this podcast. This podcast is needed. And when you ask the things we need to do, well, 
podcasts like these is one of them. We need to talk about it. And so that's one of the first steps is talking about it and talking about it makes people feel more comfortable. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.